earned a reputation as a sinner who came and washed his feet with her tears and dried his feet with her hair. And after Jesus leaves Simon's house, Luke tells us that he starts going through the cities and the villages of Galilee, and he's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And Luke tells us that the twelve are with him. He also mentions several women who are ministering to our Lord out of their means. And he brings us to a point where there's a large crowd gathered. And he tells us that Jesus spoke to the crowd with a parable. It's what we call the parable of the sower. And Jesus tells them that this sower went forth spreading seed. And some of it falls by the wayside and is eaten by the birds. Some of it falls into shallow soil and it springs up, but because of a lack of moisture, it withers and dies. He talks about some of the seed falling amongst thorns and thistles that choke the seed. And then finally, he tells us that some of the seed falls into good soil. And it produces a rich harvest. And after he's done speaking this parable, the disciples ask him, what does this mean? And he says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But to those outside I speak in parables. Because seeing they do not see... And hearing they do not hear. Now, in the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel, we read a very interesting story where Daniel is looking into the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. It's one of these rare instances where you're reading an Old Testament book and it actually references another Old Testament book. And he's looking at Jeremiah's prophecy that the exile of Israel that was brought on her because of her repeated failures to listen to God was going to last 70 years. There would be 70 years of desolation. That's the word that's used in my translation. And Daniel starts praying about this. And he starts confessing his sins And he starts confessing the sins of his people. And while he's praying, the angel Gabriel comes to him and explains to him that the 70 years that Jeremiah spoke about would actually be 70 weeks of years or 70 times seven, nearly 500 years. And at that time, the true return from exile would occur because something we need to appreciate is that while it's true that the Jews were allowed to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple, and while they had a brief moment of independence during the Maccabean revolt, they were still suffering under the yoke of pagan 
overlords. And so in their mind, the real return from exile had not occurred yet. And they were waiting for that moment when God was going to act in history and truly liberate them once and for all. And in the first century, people took this prophecy in Daniel very seriously. They were reading this book and they were looking at the dates and they were trying to calculate when this 500-year period was going to come to a close. And many of them guessed, or maybe I should say figured out, that they were living in the generation when it was going to happen. God's kingdom was about to come, and there was a great deal of anticipation about this. Now, something that I didn't always appreciate is that there was a great deal of religious diversity in Judea and Galilee at this time. I used to think that if you were a Jew living in the first century, that your religious beliefs and expectations would probably be the same as any other Jews. And the reality is that is not the case. For example, the New Testament tells us that there's two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who had completely different views about the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees believed in it. The Sadducees did not. But the religious differences didn't end there. You also had people who believed that the kingdom of God was going to be ushered in through a military revolution. That they were going to be liberated by the sword by taking up arms against their oppressors. And some of them tried it. (laughs) They attempted and they failed. Some were looking not just for a messianic figure to appear, but also a new priestly figure to appear. They were looking for two, not just one. A new king and a new priest. And then you had the Essenes who completely isolated themselves from everyone else at a place called Qumran. These were the people that left us the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in their minds, they were the true worshipers of Yahweh and everyone else was apostate. And so they believed that when God acted in history, they were going to be vindicated as his true people. And they were going to be the leaders in the new world order that God was going to establish. And so amidst all this speculation about how and when the kingdom of God is going to come, we have Jesus of Nazareth. And he's starting to attract a good deal of attention from the crowds. And the word prophet is starting to be used. And perhaps even the word Messiah was on the tip of some of their tongues. The kingdom of God was coming. The word was being sown, but it wasn't coming in the way that they anticipated it was going to come. There's a real interesting paradox that's involved in the parables of Jesus in that they are intended both to obscure and reveal. The parables were judgments against the hard-hearted and they were lamps to those who desired to see God's will done. 
And I'm relying very heavily on George MacDonald when I say this, but I think he was perfectly right when he told us in so many words that Jesus did not come in the flesh to satisfy our intellectual curiosity. And he did not come in the flesh to enact some kind of an emotional catharsis amongst the people. But the words of Jesus are directed not primarily to our intellect. They are not directed primarily to our emotions. They are first and foremost directed to our wills. That's what Jesus is speaking to. And so many theologians have obscured Jesus because their desire has not been to do what he says. Their desire has been to interpret him. And they've tried to bottle Jesus up and they've tried to fit him into systems and catechisms that we can use like an encyclopedia if we want to find out who Jesus is and what he meant. We can just look it up the way that you would look up a word in a dictionary. And I think C.S. Lewis was right on the money when he said you can't bottle up Jesus like that because it would be like trying to bottle up a sunbeam. We have to receive the word of God into our very being and from there let it grow into our understanding until it sets our whole person aflame with the light of Christ. If we want to know him, if we want to understand what he means, we have to be willing to walk by what we receive. Otherwise, we will be always looking and never perceiving. We will be always listening and never understanding. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, we read, Take care, brothers and sisters, that none of you may have an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In Luke's story, we have already encountered examples of the seed being sown by the wayside. Remember the rejection of Jesus at his hometown in Nazareth, where he was preaching the word of God with authority and his listeners couldn't receive it. They were offended by the fact that Joseph's son would be so pretentious in the first place. Secondly, they were offended by the suggestion that God had a plan for the Gentiles. There was the living word of God present among them, speaking directly to them, and they rejected him. They wanted to throw him off the brow of a cliff. Last week, we see Jesus at the home of Simon the Pharisee. Simon the Pharisee, who takes it upon himself to be the judge of God's word. 
And once again, the seed can take no root. It just bounces off the tomb of his own self-righteousness. Why? How is it that people get to this point? Because think about this. These are Jews. They're supposed to know who God is. They're supposed to be worshiping the one true God. But when he comes in the flesh amongst them, they reject him. And Jesus said it's because of what the prophet Isaiah had prophesied hundreds of years earlier. Because they drew near to God with their lips and honored them, honored him with their mouths, but their hearts were far from him. And they worshiped him in vain, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. And you can't live that way without being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so we have some serious questions we have to put to ourselves this morning. Jesus said, I want you to pray for your enemies. And we love that about Jesus. We love that it demonstrates how deep the love of God is. And that's wonderful. But I have to ask myself the question, when is the last time I've ever prayed for an enemy? Have I ever prayed for an enemy? Have I ever asked God to reconcile me to my enemies? Have I ever said, God, would you bring my enemies into a closer relationship with you that they might enter into your peace and your rest? Or am I content to just draw near with my mouth to the Lord. Jesus said that we can't serve two masters. He said you cannot serve God and serve money. Well, let's look at America today. And let's ask ourselves the question, who is America serving? And I think the answer to that question is obvious. I think the state of our economy makes it obvious because that's the interesting thing about worshiping money. It doesn't make your country strong and healthy, economically speaking. It destroys it. The idle mammon will every time end up turning on his own worshipers. And that's what's happening to us. And we have all of these Highly educated economists and analysts who have gone to prestigious schools and they are fighting to solve this problem and bringing all their worldly wisdom to bear upon it and failing. Because the reality of the situation is until we take the dollar off the throne of our hearts. The problem will continue by the grace of God. It will continue because he will take our money away from us if we choose to serve it rather than him. But we can't remove the dollar as our God if we draw near to him with our mouth and then live for money. And there are other examples that I could pull from scripture, but I think that you get the drift of what I'm saying here. We have to be careful that we are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
to make ourselves the kind of people that will just hear the word of God and the devil will just immediately come and snatch it away from us. We have to be willing to walk by what we receive. That brings me to the second sowing, the seed that fell in the shallow soil. About 10 years ago, I was at a worship service in Napa, California, and we were singing a song that has a quote from the book of Job, one of the grandest statements of faith in all of Scripture. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And I can remember that afterwards, a lady was talking to me, and she was saying, don't you think it's inappropriate for us as Christians to be singing that in a worship song? And she was serious, completely serious. Apparently, in her mind, that kind of thinking is an Old Testament phenomenon, that they had to go through trials and testing, but that's not what God wants for us now. What God wants us wants for us now is to be peaceful, prosperous, and happy. And to an extent, I think that's right. But the tragic thing about this situation is, not long after that, this woman's husband was diagnosed with cancer. And... It would be comic, almost, if it weren't so tragic, the amount of misunderstanding that some people bear on this situation. Anyone who has even a moderate understanding of early Christianity knows that the blood of the martyrs were the seeds of the early church. There is hardly a book in the New Testament that doesn't address the reality of suffering. And to us, by the way, that ought to be a little bit of a comfort. It doesn't explain the problem of evil. It doesn't explain why we're suffering, but it's not brushed under the rug either. Jesus promised us in this life, you will have trouble. And what the New Testament tells us is that our hope shouldn't be in going through this life without trials. But our hope is this, that no matter how intense the suffering we experience in this life, it won't compare to the glory we will one day share with God our Father. That's our hope, that we will one day come into that inheritance. But what St. Peter tells us is don't be surprised now If fiery trials come into your life and don't act as if something unprecedented is happening. And the reality is, whether we're willing to recognize it or not, if it weren't for suffering, we would not grow. Think about that. When do you mature? When times are easy or when times are difficult? And there's one more thing I'd like to add to this. Because when we do experience times of suffering, the burning question that's oftentimes on our minds and in our hearts is why? 
And by the way, I don't think that's arrogant or presumptuous to put that question to God when we experience trials to say, God, why? That's what Job did. He was sitting in a pile of ash and dust after he had lost everything. And he was just saying, God, what is your purpose in all this? God, could you explain it to me, please? Could you just let me have a hearing with you? Because in Job's mind, that explanation is what was going to give him peace. In Job's mind, that explanation was going to bring him comfort. But he was never given an explanation. Job was never given an explanation, but he was comforted. He did receive comfort by what? By the presence of the living God. Once he experienced that, he had peace and he had comfort. And there is great wisdom in that. If any of you here this morning are going through a trial. You might want to know why, but what I would suggest to you is to seek God's presence. And I know that theologically speaking, God is omnipresent, but oftentimes we ignore that fact, don't we? And that brings me to the last of the failed sowings, the seed that fell among thorns and thistles. And they represent the pleasures and the cares of this life. I'm going to focus primarily on pleasures just for simplicity's sake. And I want to begin by saying I think it would be unwise to interpret this in what I would call an overly Puritan fashion. And here's why I say that. Because just as I think one of our faults as Americans is that we worship mammon, another one of our faults, which is just as grievous, is that we have a zeal for ingratitude. God has given us so much to enjoy, but rather than enjoying what God has given us, rather than enjoying what we do have, we choose to complain about what we don't have. We draw our attention from our blessings and put it on our problems. Now, how many of you have known someone that when you talk to that person, that person just treats you like a sounding board for their complaining? Now, if you've ever known someone like that, you know how incredibly draining that is. There are a few things more draining than that. Well, let's not treat God like a sounding board for our complaints. And if any of you are given to a little homework this weekend, I would really encourage you to read through Paul's epistles and highlight every time he uses a cognate of the word thankful, thanksgiving, thankful, whatever it may be. Because one of the things that I've noticed is when Paul writes to these churches to tell them what it means to live out the Christian life, he's always telling them, be thankful rejoice, pray and give your supplications to God, but do it with what? Do it with thanksgiving. God's given us nature. He's given us music. He's given us art. He's given us fellowship. He's given us sports. He's given us food. He's given us drink. 
let's be thankful. Let's focus on what we do have every once in a while. Now, having said all that, it is true. And the reason I prefaced, I don't know, I can't say that, speaking in tongues. What I'm about to say with that is because I, I need to also balance it with the reality that, yes, be that as it may, it is true that we can abuse God's gifts. And that's a reality that has to be owned up to. It has to be faced head on. We can pursue pleasure in the wrong way, in the wrong time, and to the wrong extent. We can take the pleasure of drink and we can turn it into the sin of drunkenness. We can take the pleasure of sex and we can turn it into the slavery of pornography. And Jesus was perfectly clear. If we find that we are in a situation where we cannot handle God's gifts properly, we must be willing to take drastic measures. He said, if your right hand causes you to sin, you have to cut it off and cast it from you because it would be better for you to enter the kingdom of God maimed than to be thrown in the sewer of the universe with your whole body intact. We have to be willing to take drastic measures. We have to be watching to see if we're treating secondary things as the primary thing. If we are looking for ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment in a relationship or at work or a hobby. Or maybe I'm living to raise my kids to be professional athletes or whatever it is. We have to be careful. Because when we take these secondary things and we treat them like the primary thing, they become idols. Not gifts. They're no longer gifts. Thomas Aquinas said, and I think he was absolutely right, is that even pagans can enjoy an incomplete happiness in this world. You know, we might like to think that everyone who doesn't believe in God is miserable all the time. But if we will just take account of our own experience, I think we'll be able to see that that's not the case. Just because someone's a non-believer doesn't mean they're always miserable. Just because someone puts the label Christian onto their life doesn't mean that they're cheerful. And some honest Christians have sometimes remarked that they prefer the company of their secular friends. And what this presents to us is this very dreadful reality. It may not seem that way at first, but it is. It's this dreadful reality that we can train ourselves to be content with less. We can train ourselves to be content with less and choke the word of God in our hearts because yes while food and drink and sports and sex are great there are greater things there's a greater joy there's a greater peace there's a greater reality and if we'll treat the secondary things as secondary things those gifts will point us to this greater reality which is God himself and I know that to the natural person, this sounds like total nonsense. They think, right, as a pastor, you have to say that God's the greatest good because you're not allowed to have any fun and you don't want anyone else to have any fun because of it. 
And there's a great quote, and I, could rem- I wish I could remember who said it. And I think it was a non-believer speaking about cynicism. He said, you know, a cynic is someone who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And the reality of the matter is, how do you know that God's not the greatest good until you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good? If you're on the outside, the fact of the matter is, you do not know. And I think when it comes down to it, we have two paths we can take. We can choose to live this life that we've been given to please God. Or we can choose to live this life that we've been given to please ourselves. And here's what I want to point out. Either road will take you to pleasure. No matter which one you pick. You want to please God. You want to please yourself. Either way, you are going to experience pleasure. But one of those roads leads to death. And one of them leads to life. And I don't think I need to tell you which is which. Now... When we recognize our failures in this regard, when we realize that maybe we've been listening as those who don't really have any desire to do, when we look at the thorns and thistles in our lives, when we look at the places in our hearts where there's shallow soil, I'm not trying to suggest that we need to give ourselves up as lost. I don't want to give anyone that impression this morning. What I want to say is we need to recognize our failures as failures, though. And we need to believe that God is gracious. I think it was John Calvin who said that being displeased with yourself is actually the first step towards knowing who God is. It's not wrong to be displeased with ourselves so long as we still hope, so long as we still recognize that God is near us. It's much more dangerous to be pleased with ourselves because that's the manifestation of someone who has a hard heart. It's not about being pleased with ourselves. It's about recognizing our sin, confessing our sin, and then by the grace of God, doing what we can to cultivate our hearts, to take out those hard places, to dig deep in the soil, to weed out the thorns and the thistles. And Jesus says, when the seed falls in a heart like that, a great harvest will be produced. He says that those who receive the word of God with an honest and good heart will with patience glorify God. And that's what we're about. We're about revealing to ourselves and to the world who God is. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, I thank you for all of the apostles and the men and women who have loved you and revealed you to us that we might be saved. Forgive us for our ingratitude. Forgive us for treating the secondary things as first things. 
God, I pray that you would open our eyes and wake us up to the reality of who you are, that we might enter into the peace and the joy that comes from knowing you. We pray that we might might be one with you as your son Jesus is one with you. In his name we pray. Amen.